0: Good afternoon and welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how we work. The work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical applications of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, and disparities in health care. Now today we're going to talk discuss privacy on the internet, challenges posed by what we call the cloud and cybersecurity in our political system. My guest is Professor Rosario Gennaro. Rosario teaches computer science and he's the director of the Center for Algorithms and Interactive Scientific Software, which is also known as CASE here at City College. CASE researchers Um, investigate the intersection between group theory and theoretical computer science. We'll get into a little bit about what all that means. The center also mentors mathematics and computer science students here at CCNY. Uh, Professor Gennaro received his PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which uh, you may know as MIT. He did that in 1996. He was then a researcher at IBM T.J. Watson Research Center before he joined City College in the summer of 2012. His research focuses on issues of privacy and anonymity on the Internet. Um, He looks at uh, email and on websites, and he also addresses the effects of system break-ins. Professor Gennaro, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you for having me. So, CASE, as I said earlier, it's an acronym for the Center for Algorithms and Interactive Scientific Software. Please tell us what an algorithm is. It's a word you hear more and more these days. And I always pretend to know exactly what it means. And maybe this is a moment we can clear it up for me and for everybody else.
1: So an algorithm is the mathematical description of a process that takes you from an input to an output. Okay. So is the, the sequence of steps that your computation have to take to go from x to y, which is the output. x is your input, y is f of x, which mm-hmm. is your the output of the computation that you're interested. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you have some data. You want to sort the data. You want to analyze some statistical patterns on your data. Mm-hmm. So your data is x. The result is y. What steps do you take? You may have a description of the function that you want to compute, but how do you actually do that? Mm-hmm. And then for the same computation, there may be different algorithms to do that. There may be different steps that you can take. And the field of algorithms in computer science is the analysis of all these different techniques that can, you know, implement computation in mm-hmm. according to which elementary steps you take them and in which order, and then you you know sort of evaluate algorithms and depending on how fast they run or how much memory they need, or you know, and so and then you have better or less. You know better algorithms, mm-hmm. and the the class that I teach, I actually teach algorithms in the for our undergraduates. And every time I talk to engineers out there in the workforce, they all tell that it's probably the most important class that a computer science major can take, because it really helps not only from the technical point of view, but it also helps them explain. How their ideas work. So, you have an idea of how to do something, you need to really break it down in very simple steps and figure out each step, followed by each step. And so, it's just a combination the field of algorithm is a combination of mathematics, but also. English or, yeah. you know, uh, conversation, uh, the ability to explain how things work. And, and
0: logic, too. Right, lo- definitely. I mean, I remember when I was uh, in college and, and people were taking some of the first computer science classes and they'd say, you know, I'm going to do a program that, and sometimes it was silly stuff, I'm going to do a program that, that, that uh, paints a, a picture of somebody's face with numbers. And then they would sit down and they would do step one, step two, step three, and you put that all together. That's an algorithm. Right. So if I, um, on Google, if I look to find out where the fish are biting and then all of a sudden fishing poles start showing up on my computer feed, that's probably also a consequence that's, of an algorithm. That is
1: an algorithm that looks mm-hmm. at your, uh, your data, your history, your browsing, and we'll talk about later more about that today, and gives you know, your feed some... Mm-hmm. Suggestion on what to do yeah. and what to show you.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about one of your um, one of your areas of emphasis, which is privacy and and the internet. Um, and you know, we've been talking a little bit, at least on this campus, we've been talking about privacy and the internet for for a fairly long time. But when we first started talking about it, a lot of times it was speaking to students about how they used social media. So you know, a student who posts a picture of him and his friends at a wild party. That's going to live on the internet when, when he goes for a job interview. Um, and a lot, of the, so a lot of the discussion early on was advising people who use Twitter and Facebook and, and um, you know, MySpace back in the day about what it meant to be an adult representing yourself on, on, on the internet, not letting people in. But it seems... Lately, that the the conversation has changed a little bit. There's there's been a lot of conversation um, about, for instance, Facebook, and I know you had um, Alex Stemos from from Facebook on campus talking about issues of securing social media. And so I want to, if we can start, could you talk about how the nature of of our privacy issues have changed in ways that now concern big corporations like Facebook?
1: Right, so. You're absolutely right that there's this major difference in the way we're looking at the problem. It used to be, oh, make sure you don't do anything embarrassing on the right. Internet. And now we're beginning to see that our activity on social media or even just plainly on the Internet, you know, our Google searches mm-hmm. or our emails, you know, exchanges, they start defining us. Uh, they, they define a internet persona for us that is then a, run through an algorithm that provides us back with results for our Google searches or our news feed on Facebook. It's personalized to this persona that we have created through a history of browsing, and and I think that has been the most um, important realization in the last few years on how that loss of privacy, in t- intended in a very m- general sense, um, is really kind of damaging to to the individual and to society at large. Mm-hmm. It creates these echo chambers where you only get f- shown things that match your interests. Yes. So serendipity disappears. Um, you're only hearing the... F- political opinions that align to your political opinions so you're not engaging in conversation with people who may think differently than you and and it's not anymore about inappropriate use of social media but it seems it's like inappropriate use of our data and our history by the corporations who are collecting that and so now there's this sort of like Um, soul-searching awareness coming to the users and to the society at large that we are really um, creating an environment that it may not be positive anymore and that the, the, the positive promise of social media, which is definitely true on some level has also brought up all this negative things Mm -hmm. and the question that technically people like me in my field play is what can we do to mitigate that what can we sort of block out you know how can our experience on the internet and on social media can be still functional and the way we have it right now, that when I'm looking for something, I get it. I find it right away. When I don't know what my friends are doing on, uh, on Facebook, I'll see it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, not create the source. How can we limit some of that mm-hmm. through putting some filters, some technical filters to this information that mm-hmm. belongs to us but is being used in some inappropriate ways?
0: So let's talk about, because it strikes me that this is, this is something that has Uh, It has a technical aspect, and then it also has a kind of political and regulatory aspect to it. So on the technical side, and I guess this is where your work as a computer scientist probably most directly comes in, uh, are there ways of thinking about providing um, only the data that's necessary or only data that is likely not to um, do damage to an individual's privacy and, and hold in reserve... Uh, data that a company may want but doesn't need um, or shouldn't have? So there's two
1: ways to address this question. And the first, as we're right, is a regulatory one. And um, I heard a security expert on the radio the other day put it very, very clearly, which is if your app is doing a certain task, it should only collect the data that is necessary for performing that task. And in this case, it was about India's prime minister app in which you are allowed to directly text message the office of the prime minister, but they were collecting all this other data by your location, your shopping history, and all of that. And there was no need for that uh, information if the purpose of the app is to uh, just be able to communicate to the prime minister, right? Right. So there is a regulatory uh, um, and there's a, lo- whole, a whole host of technical questions on how you enforce the regulatory choices, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's another more fascinating, at least for me, yeah. <laughs> area, which is can you protect the information in a way that we can still get, So, like, for example, the aggregate, you know, so you want to learn something about your users on the aggregate, but why do you have to see all my information? Mm -hmm. So, can we, for example, encrypt information in a way that you don't see my data, but you're still able to glean enough to compute the aggregate of your billion of users, Facebook? Mm -hmm. You know, among your billion of users, you want to know some statistical patterns. And can you do that without receiving all my information? Think of it as a census, right? I fill my census form, and that is given to the government, and the government sees everything in my census. Mm-hmm. But could we encrypt the census in a way that the government will only learn you know, the racial composition of our you know, population or the age you know, mm-hmm. distribution in our population, without learning what my age is, without learning what my race is, and this was a technical question that has been uh, dogging the cryptographic. I'm, I'm a cryptographer as as a tr- as for training um, the cryptographic community for a long time. Can we encrypt information so that we can we, we can still run algorithms? Mm-hmm. Usually, data was encrypted in the military sense so that I could send you a message. Right. And then you would decrypt it and you would know what the message was. Right. And now instead we're talking about encrypting information so that we can actually run computations and algorithms on it uh, so that we can learn the only what we're supposed to learn without learning the private details of every single input that is going into this computation. And theoretically this has been a very rich field in the last Less than 10 years has mm-hmm. uh, really revolutionized our field. It's not; it's a theoretical thing that is very slowly moving towards prime time in terms mm-hmm. of practice. But it's it, the, the promise is there, and it's really great for mathematicians to have that goal in mind. This is another thing that I like about computer science. Mm-hmm. We work on very theoretical mathematical concepts, but as opposed to pure mathematicians, we have that. Goal of a practical application's mm-hmm. mind, which may or may not n- directly drive our research, but it's there. It's always present. That's what we're trying to solve, it's a real practical problem.
0: I, I, I want to um, come back to this question of, of uh, cryptography. It seems like, if I'm understanding what you're saying, I'm hearing it for the first time, so let me puzzle through it with you and, and, and our listeners. It sounds like what you what you're saying is that it would be theoretically possible to take data from users and encode it in such a way that the stuff that slips out of the code is only the stuff that somebody needs. It's almost like a like a a, a, a coded keyhole, where you say I'm going to need to look at just this information. Everything else is going to be hidden from you. And so as a, as, a, as a cryptographer and a programmer, the idea is to develop a series of algorithms or, 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 or um, cryptographies. Is that what we call them? Uh, yeah, Enco- encryption, encryption schemes. Encryption schemes right. that, that is flexible enough that it can move from topic to topic and is secure so that nobody gets to see what's outside the keyhole. Is that is that the game? That's very
1: nice analogy. I never thought about it as a, as a keyhole, but it's it's wonderful analogy. Um, yes. So um, and you can think of it um, as you have one encryption scheme which is flexible enough for any computation, or you may also develop encryption schemes that are. Okay, for some particular applications, uh, mm-hmm. one of my not to talk about my research, but one of oh, my that's most what, that's why <laughs> you're here. But one of my most cited papers is about this idea of um, securing one particular task in an electronic election, and and I'm not talking about securing electronic election in general, but say that you want to encrypt votes, okay, and then you only want to reveal the tally, um, and not the individual votes, right? Not so, who voted for whom, right? Happened, and so for exactly, and so we we figure out a way to somehow aggregate the votes, and the encryption scheme just worked for that particular task. It wow. wouldn't work for something else, uh, but it worked it, it worked very well for the task of aggregating all the votes, yeah. and then we would decrypt just the tally. I see, and you know, so you'd be able to do that, and and that was known for a little longer than one encryption scheme which would be flexible enough mm-hmm. to cover any kind of algorithm that you want to run on that data without so revealing individual inputs.
0: So if I'm just thinking about encryption in terms of, of, of votes and elections, does that simply protect the identity of people's voting, or is it also a way of preventing um, tampering? With, 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 does, does encryption... Does encryption merely block information, or does it actually pr- protect the data from people who so may want to mess with it?
1: Encryption only protects the information. Uh-huh. Then you need to add. So cryptography is usually divided in two areas. Uh-huh. One is encryption that yeah. protects the privacy of the information, and yep. the other one is authentication, which protects the integrity of the information. Okay. So then you need to somehow protect both. Okay. Integrity
0: in meaning if I vote for somebody, then in the data set forever. That's what Your it is. Your
1: vote will be not will not be changed. be
0: changed and
1: the algorithms that will run on that data will really compute the tally. I see. Because you need to make sure that whatever you run on that data really computes the function that you wanted to compute. Right. In the case of an election, is a tally, yeah. which is kind of simple because it's a simple addition. Yeah. But for more complicated function, then it becomes more complicated.
0: Okay. We're going to um, return to the question of, of politics, I think, towards the end of this conversation. Right. Um, but I did I did want to, you know, as we're talking about this, this trade-off between, um, you know, providing data that our systems need in order to function and privacy I mean one of the issues that, that comes up a lot is is how we give consent you know, and and, and I, I in most cases the the, the the mode of doing that is what they call person-to-person consent so if you've ever downloaded an app you get this little box that says have you read this agreement and you check it off and I don't know how many people read, the, the, the document, but most people don't probably. I'll confess that I almost never do. Um, and so one question is, is that an adequate device for getting consent? Are people really informed about how their data is going to be used? I think the Facebook story tells us that in many cases people had no idea how their data was going to be used. And then the second question is, even if they do know that, it is a series of individual agreements enough to protect a social system? So maybe we start with the first one of, of, you know, what does it mean when we give our consent to something like this? And is it adequate?
1: Right now, it's very meaningless because people don't read it. People don't understand it. And if I am supposedly an expert in this area, I'm not. But I also sometimes have a hard time even understanding what that means. or. I've, I would have to say no all the time and my mm-hmm. device would be deprived of any app because, you know, um if I'm concerned about third parties or data going around, you know, so so it's very it's not very meaningful, this mm-hmm. individual consent. Um and I think the The system is somewhat not working. Mm-hmm. And it's not working because the, we don't think of privacy as a social good. that right. needs to be regulated and protected. Mm-hmm. So, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine was asking me the other day, is it okay that um, I was asked about my credit score on a job interview? And I was like, I'm not sure what the law is in New York City, but it doesn't sound right. And so we went and looked it up and she they were not allowed to ask about mm-hmm. her credit score. And um and so there are laws to protect that. Yeah. And there is no individuality consent about you want a job interview and you need to agree to this kind of questions. And we need to create those kind of regulations around the data that we sort of give. I mean I the The idea that I'm giving it willingly is not a valid one. The same way in which, even if I were willing to give my credit score on a job interview, it's just not allowed. And the same thing should happen on my data on the internet. Certain things should be you know, cordoned off. Yeah. And then, as I said before, it becomes a very interesting technical question on how you enforce that or audit for that.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, you also <laughs> talked about the relationship between individual consent and 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 social um, privacy, and I think this is really interesting because, I mean, you can imagine a community of 150 people where 75% of them were asked to give consent to surrender some data, and 75% said no, I don't want you to have this information, and so now, whoever is collecting that data has data on 50% of a population. And, and we know now that advanced statistical techniques will allow you to make pretty good guesses about the individuals, even the ones who said, I don't want you to have this information. Yeah. right. And so, we, I mean, one of the issues with individual consent is if enough individuals give that consent, it almost undermines the, the right of people who have said no to make that stick? Right? I mean, I'm 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 thinking of the the Strava case, which came out earlier this year. Could, could you talk a little bit about what 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 happened there?
1: Yeah, so I I followed it just more for the amusement purpose rather than yeah. the technical. Um, so what happened is the co- uh, the company that makes um, this fitness tracking device that you make you use it for your own uh, you know, track your own run, your own bike ride, and so on. They decided to publish online the aggregate of, you know, the maps where everybody had gone for runs and bikes, bike rides, because you see a lot of people going bike riding around New York City. You know, my bike ride is not going to be leaked by that, right? My particular bike ride on a particular day. Well, it turns out that um, two things. The, the most egregious one, the, the one that everybody reacted to, was that he inadvertently disclosed the location of our military bases overseas because, especially the ones that were not public, because our soldiers used that. Mm-hmm. And so their, their bike and run routes were fully disclosed. The other one was an even more subtle one was that it gave us a map of wealth in a, and race in in America, because the people who use these devices are usually more affluent, more you know, and usually white, and so you could see that these routes were concentrated around uh, wealth and racial lines as well. Uh-huh. So it was a, and none of that was what was be expected or foreseen by the people who. Uh, put this data out there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, and there and, and the, and there you go. Uh, even if I don't use uh, one, actually, I don't use one of those devices. Uh-huh. Um, and, but from those route, you I go bike riding. At least I used to. You can probably figure out what I'm going to go bike riding tomorrow, uh-huh. even if I never gave consent for my data to be used. Because you'll see what's what's the most popular bike ride around here in New right. York, which is probably going up to Niagara and coming back over the GWB, and that's where you probably find me on Saturday morning, right? Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's this this idea that we can somehow mine information freely is has to be analyzed and evaluated by society at large, so mm-hmm. that we can sort of figure out where we want to put boundaries and stop it. And again, I say, theoretically, there's a lot of technical tools at our disposal, um, but we're not ready to sort of encrypt everybody's you know, Fitbit mm-hmm. feed and then run algorithms on that. Our technology is not ready for that. Mm-hmm. But for example, even that, even if I encrypted everybody's data and then release the routes anyway then that wouldn't that would not help right is the output itself the leaks Enough information. So at that point even those technical tools are not gonna help us to Solve the problem which is really a policy problem and policy issue
0: It's also a question of unintended consequences, right? Like if talking about the first of the two problems with, it, with the Strava case, that, that it revealed where our soldiers are. If any app had asked a member of the military to give consent to reveal their location, they'd say no, and they couldn't have given the consent anyways. Nobody who made the app or, or probably even published the maps had any idea how the data was going to be used. Right. But once data is out in the world, especially as we, we develop more and more sophisticated techniques at, for looking at one bit of information and and deriving from that a whole list of other implications, like where is their military base and where are their concentrations of, of wealth, you almost arrive at a place where you have to ask people to think five, six, ten steps ahead about what could people learn if they know this information right. about people.
1: Right. And for the case of the military, um, I mean, those... Military personnel, they agreed. At some point, they agreed to let Strava collect and release their data. And somehow, where was the military involved in monitoring that decision? So, and there is no communication, you know, between a soldier in his private iPhone agreeing to that. And so, there has to be policy in place that somehow checks in on the the dual figure of me as a private individual and me as a public individual, like a a member of the faculty at City College, right? So that has to be somehow... Once we start uh, releasing all this, there has to be some sort of, you know,
0: policy in place for that. Yeah. And in some sense, we we are still dealing in a world where we imagine privacy is a person-to-person agreement, and it's not because we... You know, every individual is an individual, part of a, a, all kinds of social groups, and together we make up a society. Right. Um, and it's exactly what you were talking about earlier, the the, the collective implications of individual decisions to release private w- information.
1: What changed that, I think, is the scale of collection. We can keep analyzing privacy and anonymity and all of that, in the world in which we were connected to, you know, a much smaller group of individuals, but we really, you know... It, it started with using credit cards. Mm-hmm. Know, I remember a friend of mine being surprised that he started getting in the mail, you know, advertising... But they were talking about the 90s. There was no internet at the time, right? Getting advertisement on direct mail linked to some of purchases that he had made on his credit card. Right. And so... Um once, we, once our network of connectivity expands, we have to rethink the, you know, the crumbs that we leave around that mm-hmm. will be connected at some level.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I uh, ask you to please uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with more conversation with uh, Professor Gennaro on cybersecurity, cryptography, and privacy. welcome back to from city to the world i'm your host vince boudreau and i've been speaking to professor rosario gennaro he teaches computer science and is the director of the center for algorithms and interactive scientific software also known as case here at city college and we've been discussing privacy and the internet and we'll soon turn to discussions of the cloud but i want to talk a little bit now you know we've we've, we spent the first half of the show talking about privacy now i want to talk more Explicitly about cybersecurity and the kinds of attacks that that um, that you think about, and that w- I think we all need to think about. You know, back in the day when we talked about cybersecurity, we again we were talking largely about how I protect my PC from a virus, malware. More recently, uh, ransomware, where somebody you know, freezes your computer until you pay a certain amount of money. But but the conversation was always uh, sort of me and my um, personal computer, uh, Mac or, 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 or IBM, being attacked by somebody out there. And you work on a totally different scale. And that has something to do, has a lot to do with the way technology has evolved. Um, so I wonder if you could, could, could talk a little bit about the sorts of threats that are most uh, germane to the work that you do.
1: So um the probably the most um dangerous things that is happening right now is the um so the ransomware is still a problem a problem and that is you know on more large scale because now we're not attacking just your personal computer but we're attacking systems that belongs to hospitals or you know emergency responders and so
0: on um, could, could you sorry? Could, could you sort of lay that out a little bit more? Like, how does that work exactly?
1: The way it works is that somehow a virus or a trojan horse get downloaded into your system, and it's usually through some sort of uh, social engineering attack, in which you are you receive an email that looks like it's coming from your friend, and mm-hmm. uh, you end up opening the attachment, and you are inside the corporate uh firewall of your of your company but once that gets downloaded inside the entire system gets infected and what happens is that the data gets encrypted and to and not with that kind of functional encryption that you can actually do anything with it but really encrypt it and at that point your system is shut down and you receive a message which asks you to pay a certain amount of money, usually with one of these new cryptocurrencies in which it's it's hard to trace where this money is going, and to get your data fully uh, decrypted. And we know that lots of companies don't divulge that, but they they have gone through that and they have paid the ransom and got back on their feet. So, um, so that's uh, one of the problems. But in general, the 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 largest problem is this ability to penetrate inside a system, and steal information mm-hmm. from the system, and that then do something with it. So, and that is something which it's 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 a harm race really, in which people um, software mm-hmm. as it gets so complicated that. There's always going to be bugs in your operating system that will allow a um, attacker to somehow circumvent security measures and gain unauthorized access. And although I'm not saying that a fully secure operating system is impossible, but it's very, very challenging. So we need to somehow think as the these attacks will always you know, happen. Or at least that's the way I like to think. And so and what can we do to, you know, help mitigate the effects of um system break ins mm-hmm. when they happen. Mm-hmm. So that they're not as devastating as, you know,
0: they usually are. So let's so let's pursue these two different um topics. One is, you know, what can we do to secure our systems against these these larger scale attacks, and then once we've talked about that, let's move on to talking about what what it is you can do after you've suffered an attack to mitigate the the effects of that.
1: So, well, so let's let's start, let's start with the first. Yeah. So one thing that is um, very common in the system break-ins is that. Um, the the most valuable information that these hackers go after is passwords, mm-hmm. so and if they learn your password, um, you know I would like to ask our audience how many of you use the same password across different mm-hmm. uh, domains, and so if you're using a password the same password on your social media on your bank on your if one of those Systems gets compromised because they have a bug in your in their login system or whatever, and your password on this particular app gets compromised mm-hmm. then all they have to do is go and try it on your bank account, mm-hmm. and they may be able to wipe you out of your money right so and that's exactly and that's exactly how it works mm-hmm. so There's a market on the dark web for passwords that have been stolen from mm-hmm. these websites. And um, I I saw a presentation from a Google engineer that said something like, and I don't remember if it was hundreds of millions of Google users' passwords were valid passwords Mm -hmm. were found on the dark web, but not because Google was compromised, but because those users were using. The same password on some other website.
0: So they would, they would get a password from someplace else, right. and then it turns out. And then it works.
1: turns out it was the same as Google and they were able to log in into these this people, Google
0: accounts. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask you to define one more thing? because yeah. this, this is another thing we hear about all the time, the dark web. Could you could you say huh. that? and then uh, we'll and then we'll get back to
1: the dark web. So the dark web is this. Um, it's like you know your house. You have, may have a dark corner in your house mm-hmm. where you never go and dark, and there's stuff going on that you may not be fully aware of because you haven't been there in a long time. Mm-hmm. So there are you know servers and corners of the web that you can only connect if you know where they are. And you probably hear by word of mouth. And mm-hmm. when you go there, you they're probably so they're not fully connected to the rest of the internet. So you can probably what happens on those uh, dark corners is that Ill- illegal transactions mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. One of the biggest one was shut down a couple of years ago. The the Silk Road, right? Uh, right. And they're usually. Um, child pornography, drug use, and all sorts, you know, also, I mean, drug market and all sorts of like uh, market for legal information, like stolen passwords. Right. So in, and um, so that's, that's where you go to, to find, and the move, constantly moves because they have to be, they want to be a step ahead of law enforcement. So it's always like a, as opposed to the dark nor- corner in your house, which is always in one place, right. this keeps moving, and the connections kept severed and recreated from somewhere else, and the community knows now the new route to get to this place, and law enforcement might always be lagging behind. Uh-huh. So that's that's where this kind of transactions...
0: This sounds happen. like a theme in, 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 in what we're talking about today, this kind of, earlier you talked about... Uh, cyber protection as an arms race where, where you know somebody out there makes an innovation that can crack a code and then you've got to build a better code and it it, it just seems that if you, you look at you know privacy questions, cybersecurity questions, encoding questions, it's all this kind of race of how can we um, how can we overcome the security systems, how can we build security systems that are that are better than the attackers?
1: So that's one way to look at it. And then there are the more theoretical-minded people like me that would like to get out of this okay. sort of armed race, and we want to think in terms of can we somehow define things in a way that there is no way around. We can create a security system where... so. To write a piece of secure code, that might be really difficult, Mm -hmm. but can we somehow protect the data in a way that even if you break the code and get through, you find this data, can we somehow stop the arm race there Mm -hmm. and say, okay, you got to the the data, and now under some reasonable assumptions, there's still nothing you can do, Mm -hmm. okay? So... Um so there's the the more theoretical minded security professionals we try to somehow figure out a way to make our limits on the capability of the attackers the side the other side of the coin is that sometimes our solutions are not. Practical enough, so mm-hmm. our, our to to be used in practice to be used in in large scale systems like mm-hmm. the ones that we're working with today. Mm-hmm. so but so in, it, it's a you, you may want to think of us a different kind of arms race there in which we're trying to catch up with to the efficiency and the functionality of the system without mm-hmm. slowing it down to enforce all the security provisions in a way that then it becomes too slow or mm-hmm. too inefficient mm-hmm. to be used and then people are not gonna use it anyway.
0: Yeah. So is this what we're talking about when we talk about um, mitigating the effect of a successful attack or are there things that are short of this um, very theoretical approach? Let that, me, that
1: let, me yeah, let me. Yeah. give you a, an example. Back at the beginning of the internet, and I'm, I'm that old, <laughs> uh, me too. that's when I started working, at, I finished my PhD and I started working at IBM and i that was on the time in which the credit card companies and were concerned about the use of the internet and this credit card numbers being sent around in the clear and so there was this entire effort to develop a protocol that would allow the the use of credit cards securely over the internet mm-hmm. which was a lot more sophisticated and a lot more um secure than what we're using right now. Right now, there's a point-to-point system between the user and the vendor, and the credit card number gets transmitted, encrypted to the vendor, but then the vendor decrypts it in the clear. And then it sits on the vendor server, and that's where credit card numbers are compromised. They're not compromised in transition because they're encrypted, Mm -hmm. but then they're sitting in the clear on Amazon server or Yahoo server in that target, right. the famous target attack, and that's where they get compromised. And we back then, w- there was actually an IBM effort, led effort, um, we developed this protocol where the vendor would never see the credit card in the clear, but he would just get an assurance that the credit card was valid, uh-huh. the number was valid, there was enough funds, and the purchase was approved. It was, of course, a more complicated protocol than just a point-to-point encryption. And so it never took off and it never got used. But that was the correct solution that should have been implemented to prevent the kind of attacks that we're seeing today. So it's a different kind of... We are able to somehow say, no, this is not going to happen and we can create a protocol that will not make happen. But there's a different kind of arm race going on in which... Your protocol is too slow. Your protocol is too cumbersome, and we're going to go for this solution because it's faster and simpler, and we're going to cut corners. But then we shouldn't be surprised if we we pay a price for that.
0: So that was the that was the criticism of the alternative to the point-to-point right. encryption that yeah. it was too slow, too complicated. <laughs> right, there was
1: an extra, you know, extra bur- burdensome, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cumbersome. Sorry, uh, steps that would make.
0: The transactions lower. So let's assume that we all decided now that there have been so many credit card um, breaches that it, we had to move away from the point-to-point system, and we had to to go to the system that you talk about. I mean, very often at the beginning of something you can go down one path, but if you go down another path, like point-to-point path. To get all the way back to retool the system it's so expensive so disruptive yeah, that think, you can't do it
1: yeah i think the the cows are out of the barn and we're all we're so ingrained in the system hmm. that even if certain vendors are going to move back to the other system there's still going to be legacy systems and you can't cancel those because you still want them to be functional and so at this point it's it's it could be done, but it's probably not going to
0: happen. So if we're talking then about um, mitigating the effects of, of successful cyber attacks, what, what is? so you've given us two, right? One that, that uh, maybe would have been possible at the dawn of, of Internet okay. credit cards and, and one that is perhaps so theoretical that it, it, it is at least currently not practicable. Right. Is there something yeah, in between? Yeah, there's
1: something in between. For example, another big uh, problem these days is attacking um, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges mm-hmm. where large amount of cryptocurrency value is stored. And if you're able to break uh, into the system and steal the secret key that controls those, that money, then you can transfer that money to your account. Mm-hmm. So I've actually been working on this quite a bit. Um, on how can we take this very short pieces of information. This is just an encryption key, which is 200 byte, yeah, uh, 200 bit, actually, and um, um, breaking into pieces that can be stored over several servers and have this server somehow play jointly Mm -hmm. in the role of this unique server that where all the information was stored. And so, and can we do that in an efficient way? And we have examples where that can actually be done. And we have companies already implementing this kind of systems Mm -hmm. where the security is not, the single point of failure is somehow eliminated from the system through the use of cryptographic techniques.
0: I see. We haven't actually talked about the cloud yet, and I want to um, briefly talk a little bit about about how cloud computing has evolved. And you have some very specific work about securing the kind of operations that are now taking place in the cloud. And and maybe as we start, you know, many of us first encountered the, the idea of a cloud in you know the iCloud or uh, some people use Dropbox, where it's basically a place where you store information, and then you can retrieve it. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So it's become, it's really, um, think of that and think of that on a corporate level. Okay. So small businesses that don't want to provision their own in IT infrastructure, they will buy. And Amazon pioneered this because they had all the servers sitting there and they decided to use, when they were down, to use them something else. And then the other major companies started catching up with it. So you just don't provision your own IT service, but you're just going to store your data with one of these cloud service providers. And if it was just storing your data, it would be one thing, but now you're going to also ask them to process your data. So think of an hospital. You're going to send your billing uh software you're going to just give it to amazon web services with all your patient data and they will do your billing they will do your maybe your your patient monitoring you know and all of that so now um the, the advantages for companies is are is that you only pay for what you need if you're Business is seasonal, for example. You hire more storage and more computing power during the high season, and then you pay for less storage and less computing power when your business is going down. So
0: like a tourist uh, exactly. company might do that.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So now so there's this much uh, higher flexibility in the way you, you can use your computing power on demand. The... Disadvantage from a security point of view is that you are sharing a platform with a lot of other users which you may not be aware of. And this scaling up and down means that this particular deck of memory might be freed by you and allocated to me. And of course, before it did this, the company might scrub it out so that all your data is gone. But we have examples and papers written at conferences about this on how somehow the scrubbing wasn't very good, and I can get some idea what your data was before that particular location, memory locations, were allocated to me after you freed them up. Yeah. So there is, on a purely technical, uh, um, actually, like really like almost physical level of what's written in these little magnetic tapes, uh, there is a problem there of um, uh, memory permanence and all of that. But then there's also a more interesting problem, at least for me, which is I am giving my data and I'm giving my entire code base to a provider which I may or may not trust necessarily. right? So we already talked a little bit about the secrecy of the data, but also what about the integrity of my data and the computation that I'm sort of outsourcing to these providers? How do I know that they are computing what they're supposed to compute and, and give me back the correct result? I see. So that's a lot of the work that I've been doing for the last five to 10 years. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. It's, it, I mean, I guess the question is, in a situation like that, who has the, who has the interest in making sure that outsourced computational functions are secured. Is it I mean obviously if I'm if I'm paying for for someone else to do my computing I want it to be safe. But I may not have a view into what's going on. Um, if I am the 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 person who's scrubbing the data I think there's a balance, right? It may be really expensive to do a really exactly. good job. Exactly. So who is it that takes so you have somebody who's interested in it but doesn't have the position to get it done, somebody who may only be marginally interested in it if it doesn't cost too much. Where where do we intervene to make sure that cloud computing is as secure as we'd like it to be?
1: We should be we should intervene at the infrastructure level. Mm-hmm. So the infrastructure should be deployed, and there too, I think the cows have left the barn. <laughs> should be deployed in a way that certain guarantees are in place, uh-huh. so that. Uh, data is partitioned and uh, sandboxed, uh-huh. that that's the technical term, uh, securely, so that your data and my data will never get uh, mixed up. I see. Um, that code should come with some sort of proof of correctness, mm-hmm. so, and all of that. And that, I think it's really an infrastructure kind of, you know, should go from the client to the server and throughout mm-hmm. that the entire infrastructure should reflect the security demands and the security requirements, in order to make sure that everything is in place. Okay,
0: we have just a few minutes left, and uh, I'd be remiss if we left this conversation without spending a little bit of time talking about cybersecurity and American electoral politics. Oh and I know, I know you don't work specifically on this, but so from a theoretical perspective, looking at the kinds of systems we used in our political life. How vulnerable do you think they are I, from a you know from a theoretical computer science framework? Okay, so the one thing that I'm not gonna
1: get into you know the Facebook or the it doesn't matter it's not really Facebook but the social media mm-hmm. influencing and all that. But there's I have one particular pet peeve okay. <laughs> with the electoral uh, the, the technology in the electoral, and it's this idea that new is necessarily better. Mm-hmm. And if, if, for example, there's this idea of internet voting, but there have been several position papers by the cryptographic research community, my community, in which we say we're not ready. Uh-huh. We're not ready to secure large-scale political elections. It's too, the stakes are too high. Don't do it. Mm. Um, but we have also highly... Uh, critical as a research community of systems that for example have no paper trail yes so several counties in the United States vote with systems that have absolutely no no paper trail you go you push the button on a screen your vote awfully is recorded on a disk magnetic disk inside a system you have no way of knowing if that software has been tempered. You have no way of doing an audit. You have no way of knowing that your vote has been counted because there is no paper trail. So I am a big fan of the New York system in which you, mm-hmm. you know, you fill up a whole ball and you scan it. You get the results right away. But if it's close, you can go back and. Audit the never happened, but it should. Yeah. Um, but the systems where there is no paper trail are really scary to me, and that would be step one in my mind to start securing the because if we move on those systems on a large scale, yeah. the possibility of being manipulated would be very, very high,
0: yeah. And 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 I suppose the idea that you know, we better be ready for internet voting because we're a modern society. I, if that overshoots the preparedness of, of our infrastructure, those would be just uh, another group of cows leaving the barn, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. Okay.
0: All right. So what I've heard, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that there are likely people listening to this who, who are asking themselves, what does this mean? Specifically for me, if I'm a small business owner, if I'm at home, I've heard a couple of things. I've heard we have to be a lot smarter about our passwords.
1: Use a password manager. A password manager is a piece of code that you put on your phone, on your computer, where you have a single password to log in into the password manager, but then the password manager will select different passwords for you on all the other websites. So people say, oh, what's the point? I still have only one password, but the one password is between you and your device.
0: And it's not shared anywhere uh, else. And
1: Right, and your device then is going to have lots and lots of passwords for all. The, so that somebody breaks into your crappy app website and get your password there, will, they will not get your password on. They will have to get your phone to get your maybe your password manager's password. Okay. So that, number one. That's the, that's the single one. For, sing, for a user, for a general user, a password manager.
0: Yeah, I don't um, have a password manager, so I'm going to leave the studio, go to my um, little phone, and get one right away. Uh, I'm always um, forgetting where I leave my passwords, and so my solution has been to put them somewhere on my... Computer, that's probably a bad idea. (laughs) Probably, yes. Okay, so you heard it here first, folks. Don't do what I do to secure your data. Um, So I want to thank you for today's conversation. Thank you, listeners, for listening to From City to the World. Uh, I want to especially thank our guest, Professor Rosario Gennaro, a computer science professor and the director of the Center for Algorithms and Interactive Scientific Software, also known as CASE here at City College. The show is produced by Angela Hardin. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of the City College of New York. And one last thing, if you have a child that's interested in this conversation, you should send him or her to City College because we're waiting for them. Thank you, and we'll see you again next month, last Wednesday of every month at 3 o'clock for the next episode of From City to the World.